It would be hard to find someone today who hasn't been touched by a mental health condition, either personally, through friends, or family. According to the National Alliance of Mental Illness, approximately one in four adults in the U.S., that's over 40 million people, experience mental illness each year. Despite its pervasiveness today, society still holds tightly to many mental health stigmas that stand in the way of getting treatment. In fact, less than half of those currently living with a mental health condition receive treatment in the past year. Hiding or covering mental illness is not uncommon, especially in the workplace. So how can we create a workplace culture that empowers people to take care of their mental health in the same way that they take care of their physical health? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. For a child who's having an upset moment and crying to be sent to their room until they're ready to put on their good happy face and come out and be a good boy or a good girl. I mean, this is the message that many of us grew up with in our home environment, that sadness and anger were completely unacceptable and actually bad. So we have to hide that. Whereas um, a healthier approach would be to say, feelings of all sorts are just normal. They're like agnostic. There's no judgment about them. They happen for people. It's how we process them and it's what we do with them. And I think we all learned very early on, just don't show it and you, you, you pay less of a price. I'm here with Dr. Christine Moutier. She is the Chief Medical Officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She was also a practicing psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry, and has held a number of leadership positions in hospitals across California. So I was a dean for student affairs and medical education in a medical school, an academic medical school in the University of California, San Diego. And um, over a period of uh, decades, several of us um, were noticing lots of different things about the cultural environment that were pretty... um, pretty strange if you think about trying to raise up healers of, um, and deliverers of healthcare to the general population. And then over a period of 15 years, there were 13 deaths by suicide wow. of, of faculty physicians of all different specialties. And um, about halfway into the experience of that, there was a recognition that, um, or even just asking the question, does the workplace have anything to do with these loss of valuable um, physician colleagues? Because suicide is obviously very complex. But I mean, we can, we can sit and wait and watch for a while just to collect ourselves and figure it out. But when it's been going on for years or worsening and spiraling into suicide risk or leading to work impairment in the case of physicians, medical errors are known to be tied to symptoms of burnout. Um, then that's, that's not okay. And, and, um, and we should, we can do better than that. Um, so we did a survey and we heard all about various aspects of anxiety, depression, addiction, burnout, um, lots of different reasons that people would not be willing to, um, to get treatment, let alone to seek it from anything related to the workplace. 
um, let alone to know how to have conversations about their own well-being in the workplace. And based on that, we landed on a two-prong approach. It's called the Healer Education Assessment and Referral Program, HEAR for short. And basically, the two prongs are a massive educational approach trying to really get right at the stigma around our own mental health. So it's about physician mental health and well-being, resilience, burnout, and suicide prevention, all of that, the whole spectrum. Paired with a program called the Interactive Screening Program, which was developed by the organization I now work for, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And this Interactive Screening Program, or ISP, allows people who are in distress to interact online with a counselor without saying who they are. Mm. So it's a very unique um, program that even just on its own has referred over 300 physicians into treatment over the 10 years, most of whom said, I wouldn't have otherwise sought help. Myth debunking. First of all, what is mental illness? How do you define it? Well, I would even start by backing up and saying, what is mental health? Okay. And mental health has to do with the way our thoughts are going, our perceptions, our feelings, um, but it affects our physical state as well. So sleep, energy, appetite, those are actually all part of mental health. So there's an actually overlap between mental health and physical health, but it involves emotions, perceptions, but also cognition. So then what is mental illness? So mental illness is the point at which symptoms are in our mental health are becoming more um, extreme to the point that they are leading to some level of um, us having to tend to them, spend energy on them, or start to impair us in some way. So it's affecting our sleep, our thinking, our judgment, our mood. And, and the, the effect can start so minor that we attribute it to stress because we're experts about stress right. in our life. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but there is a point at which it crosses a line and it is now running the show. So a mental health condition is now leading the person to think and behave and feel in ways that are not their healthy norm, even given the stressors that are going on. So can you give me an example of how do I like how do I personalize that or how would I identify that in in my own life because I hear what you're saying mm -hmm. but then how do you know when you've kind of crossed that line if you will I think it's actually really hard for the person to know themselves okay it's really hard to be objective about our own really physical health too but yeah. especially our mental health because we live inside our minds and our brains and it is the organ of the brain that is becoming sick at that point so, I mean, some good rules of thumb are if you are finding that you're having to spend extra time and energy because your anxiety and your worry is kind of leading you down a path to think that it's just the world is, is that stressful and yeah. there is that much to worry about. Again, that's the problem with generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. It just feels real and feels that way. But so does depression. Depression yeah. just feels like there is so much weight on my shoulder and there's, there is so much doom and gloom. So our brain clearly can play tricks on us. I think it's one of the reasons that for all of us, hopefully, we have people in our lives that can include, at times, in a trustworthy way, even our coworkers yes. who can help reality check 
is the stress load and the way I'm responding, are they matched up? Think about the patterns that you know in your own life and the choices that you tend to make most days, even when stressed out. When those choices start to change and those patterns of behavior, and you can think about your loved ones too, your gut instinct, we're all fairly savvy if we're connected um, you know, socially, if we're wired that way, to notice when things deviate from the usual patterns. Our brains are really good at picking up on that. It's just that we've, we've learned how to dismiss it and, and write it off to the stress of the day. So I actually believe, um, and we can talk about statistics perhaps later, but that mental health conditions, um, it is important to, to go see a professional and get a diagnosis and engage in treatment at a certain point, absolutely. But there is a huge swath of, right. of land between in between that. my normal healthy self and when things deteriorate to that point that we can become much smarter about. And these are just such common experiences um, that I would actually look at it this way, that if, if one in four people are living with a mental health condition, more than that around us, and maybe including ourselves, are dealing with various vulnerabilities that could be leading down that path. Again, so it's a more upstream approach to sort of dialing in our mental health. I want to talk a little bit about the stigma that exists today around mental health or, or mental illness. Can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, what you believe the stigma is and, and why that stigma exists? Well, I think that until even in recent years, there wasn't as much neuroscience and science around psychiatric illness and all the other social sciences, um, psychology and otherwise, to even inform us at a scientific level, let alone for that information to be translated into lay knowledge. So mental illness was thought of from the movie, The One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or whatever you grew up with that was your sort of stereotyped picture of mental illness. And so it was a really askew picture right. of the, the truth, which is that there are mild forms of mental illness that include mild chronic depression like dysthymia, mild forms of anxiety in people who can get panic attacks, mild forms of addictive behavior that we have unfortunately not recognized and we've in a way normalized yeah. a lot of mildly pathological problems and so mildly sorry to interrupt you yeah. but mildly means that in a lot of cases those people are functioning yes pretty much just fine or at least to the outside world just fine right okay that's right okay so so back to your question about what is stigma i think stigma then when we start talking about getting really smart about our mental health and mental illness people get confused like well i don't have that whatever that right. stereotype is in my family or in my workplace. Because it's not extreme. Right. Okay, yeah. Or in my school or community. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> the chances yeah. are in most families, in absolutely every workplace and community, there are many different manifestations of mental illness. The stigma has kept it under wraps. Yeah. So people have become, unfortunately, really good at putting on a good face at the expense of their health and possibly even other um, other health consequences. But that's not sustainable, ultimately, no. right? That eventually comes to light in many different unfortunate ways. Right, I mean, here's the balance. We have all been raised in a, in a society where self-sufficiency and putting on the good face and the strong face 
is part of the deal. And that serves us really well if we have reasonably good health because it teaches us stamina and perseverance and resilience and all of those important things that children and we all need to keep exercising the muscle of. But where it goes too far is where we didn't realize that continuing with the just buck up and get more disciplined approach rather than actually reaching out for help or getting professional help, that's where it's point of minimal, like maximal and then diminishing return. So basically what you're saying is that there's people that are not, they're not intentionally hiding their mental illness, but because of the stigma associated with it, they're just completely unaware that they have one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many people who are living with depression, PTSD, anxiety, addiction, have it absolutely rationalized and normalized. And especially in certain occupations where the culture is particularly stoic and where your identity in whatever occupation that is, I'm talking about law enforcement, military, physicians, construction workers, agriculture, I mean, lots of different occupations. Um, that that identity is wrapped up in, well, if I didn't see this every day in my work life, then it, and, and, and rationalizing their sense of extreme distress, their bodily problems, right. their suicidal ideation, their nightmares, their, you know. And is it also too, probably because they've been living with it for so long that they have just accepted that, okay, well, that's the way that it is, or this is how life is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, it. Yeah. Right. It's sometimes mental illness comes on with a bang right. and, a, you know, a big new psychotic break or a manic break. More often, it comes on pretty insidiously okay. where the symptoms start and they're embedded in your life and in the stress that's going on in all of our lives all of the time. Yeah. And so we just don't feel it or sense it that way. And again, I think societally, we just have not been educating each other and children on up about what that is and what are the manifestations of mental illness. Um, It's the case that of all one in four Americans living with mental illness, 50% of that that swath of mental illness presents before the age of 14 and 75% before the age of 24. So if you just think about that, like we are not doing a good job at recognizing the onset early enough. Years and years usually go by of that mental illness taking a toll before people realize and come to treatment, and some people never do. Yeah, because there's some staggering numbers about the number of people that don't seek treatment. Yes. We're doing a pretty bad job at it. Uh, More than half of people with a mental health condition either don't know that they have one or they are not actively pursuing it um, in any, you know, official way, meaning they're not getting treatment, they've never had it diagnosed. Um, so as a side note, for example, when you read the most recent CDC report about suicide and it says 54% of people who died by suicide didn't have a known mental health condition, that a large portion of that can be accounted for by the fact that they didn't know that they did or their loved ones, their decedents didn't So it wasn't diagnosed know. by Correct. a medical professional. Right, right. So, right. So we're not yet a very mental health literate society, but we're getting, we're trying and we're going to get there. We're going to, we're going to deepen it and get better for sure. I guess when it, when it comes to seeking treatment, those that do seek treatment, what, what is the success rate? I mean, what does that look like for somebody that does have a mental health condition? Treatments can be very successful. 
Um, if you're talking about treating depression, for example, then accessing treatment is going to be successful at managing, if not leading to full remission, meaning all of the symptoms being fully, fully addressed, in about 80% of cases. Okay. Now, the the detail here, though, is that finding that best treatment, finding a treatment provider, finding a provider who takes your insurance, and one you connect with, can all be so um, sort of overwhelming. And if you're not well-versed in how to do this, and, or if you're the loved one trying to help lead somebody to care, it can be extremely challenging. And I think that that is a reality that I don't want to minimize, but I also don't want it to keep people from seeking treatment. Right. I mean, you you wouldn't deprive yourself of treatment for any physical health condition. So if you have a broken leg, you right. wouldn't just right. because, sit there and have a broken leg. Yeah. Right. You would, you would put in the time and energy to figure out who is the best person covered by my insurance and that I can go see and figure it out. And we, we do do that for, for our physical health. And many of us do it for our mental health right. as well. But it, it does take some effort and it helps, therefore, if there is no stigma, at least in certain aspects of your, whether it's your workplace or your friend group, where you can actually talk about what's going on so you can talk to each other about how to navigate that. Um, so you, you've talked about some stats already, um, but what can you tell us about kind of the status of mental health in America today? Has it changed over the years? Is it better? Is it worse? What's contributing to these changes? Right. So overall, I would say the prevalence rate of mental health conditions is remaining fairly stable. Among youth, however, prevalence of mental health conditions is going up. Okay. And that is very concerning. Um, is that a matter of being a little bit better at recognizing mental health conditions in young people? There might be a portion of it that is accounted for by that. But like physical health, when it comes to mental health, the environment and the culture and the things that you're experiencing around you interact with your brain, just like they do for somebody who has heart disease, same thing, their mm -hmm. environment, their stress level, their smoking or not smoking, all those things absolutely impact the course of their heart disease. Same thing with, with mental health conditions. So people who develop depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, oftentimes there's a genetic sort of underlayer that okay. puts them at risk in the first place and then there are other sort of hits on top of that okay. whether it's early childhood adversity um, you know a whole host of things that can happen in childhood and beyond that interplay with mental health I think um, we would be remiss if we didn't think about some of the sort of just really prevalent trends in our society having to do with technology um, yeah. having to do with phones and screen time, especially for children while their brains are developing still, um, things like that. Uh, those most certainly can impact the development of, of a child's brain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and can you talk a little bit more since we're, we're on the topic of technology, screen time, you know, social media, social comparisons, um, how is that impacting our mental health? I mean, you know, even for those of us that are, you know, I guess, quote unquote, mentally healthy on most days, it still, you know, has 
does have an impact. So can you dive more into that? There is a growing literature, a body of research that's looking at the impact of social media and screen time on mental health, and particularly for young people, but for for everyone as well. And that what the data is showing is a sort of extreme mixture of, of results with one um, bucket, I'll just try to sort of do some lumping into categories, saying that overall, if young people and older people are not on their screens for, let's say, more than several hours a day, then um, then it's looking like it's sort of a nuanced level of, you know, good and bad, right? And and sort of fine overall. For people who have heavy use, then there are some significant vulnerabilities that can develop, including addictive um, usage, and depression, and even increased suicide, uh, suicidal ideation. But in that, in that nuanced layer that I was talking about, there was a specific honing in on people who already have a propensity for depression, mm. self-doubt, lack of self-confidence, insecurity, or anxiety. And for those individuals, as they, they utilize social media in a different way so that they're gauging the feedback that they get from others in a way that is so much more sensitized. So the number of likes I get. Yes, yeah, okay. yes. Yeah. And, and even sort of... Um, I would call it distorting of comments. So people who are very, very interpersonally sensitive will read the comments of other people's behavior in a different way, mm. and they do the same thing on social media. So it's sort of just like real world put into um, that, that form, that medium. And so for those individuals, it can go south very fast okay. in terms of impacting their, ne- their mental health in a negative way. And I will say there are many young people I've met now who are advocates for mental health and on their college campuses and um, different really cool activities going on who spontaneously will talk about how they learned to unplug and they read their own indicators of when their mental health was starting to deteriorate because of their use of social media. Yeah, we've been talking about society at large, right? So our organizations are clearly just a microcosm of the society that we live in. And so can you talk about what should organizations and, and leaders be doing or starting to think about when it comes to mental health in the workplace? I think that an understanding of our coworkers or our employees as um, resources of the company and the work that we do is usually not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so finding ways to, to get the most out of ourselves as a resource. It might sound logical that if I just work 23 hours a day and I'm there for everyone and responding, then that's gonna be my, my way to success. But the, the fact is, as a human being, none of us will be able to sustain that for any length of time. And so, I really think it boils down to um, creating a culture as the leader of a workplace for your individuals and role modeling this yourself Mm -hmm. can help and all of us can actually help with that role modeling where we actually figure out ways um, to find that balance. And um, I know we talk about a lot about work-life balance, but it might look quite different from one person to the next. And so really, I think just encouraging open dialogue about 
how do you even make those discoveries? Is this something we can even talk about in the workplace where I'm not going to be viewed as less than because I'm actually talking about um, trying to figure out how to dial up my strategy by unplugging right. some of so the I time. So I can be better when I am at work. Yes. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's a little bit of a paradoxical sounding right. um, topic. As a leader, so I'm a leader of a team, how do I, how do I start? How do I begin that dialogue? Well, I think the message usually needs to actually counter the old way, which mm -hmm. was much more of the hardcore traditional, you know, trying to get the most out of your employees. Um, this is a different way to get the most out of everybody, and it can start with a concrete conversation like this, especially, let's say, at a new staff orientation. If the supervisor says something like, because the work is intense here and life is happening for all of us in real time, it's helpful to know and have you come to me at an earlier time. Don't wait. If, if something's going on in your life, in your health or a family member's health, that warrants a discussion around just creative brainstorming possible sort of informal ways to make sure that you can keep working and working well. I would rather have that conversation early rather than find out after the fact when things have started to show up right. in terms of negative um, impact on your work. That's one way to actually make it very specific to say, let's talk about these things earlier right. rather than thinking you need to hold it in like no one's going to notice and then it becomes a problem. So how do you balance um, creating a workplace culture that promotes removing the stigma around mental health and balancing that with someone's own personal privacy? I didn't. Right. No, I think that's a good question. Um, and I think it comes from a place of that we're early with this experience of how we navigate mental health um, in the workplace. And what I would say is having had hundreds of these conversations with everyone from medical students to coworkers to bosses um, to colleagues in the hospital and, and now at, at a nonprofit organization, is that in the same way that an employee might say, um, an employee might have a physical illness, like let's say diabetes or, or hypertension, that they are not comfortable revealing to their their coworkers or their supervisor. And that is absolutely within their right to mm -hmm. never mention and never have to mention what their diagnosis is. But they may be, have to have a conversation with their boss around needing something to accommodate something that's going on with their diabetes. And again, they do not have to call it diabetes when they have that conversation. The same type of conversation can happen for depression or PTSD. Um, addiction is a little bit trickier because there is um, defined impairment. Right. It's not social norm, normative drinking or use at that point. Um, but with every other mental health condition, there's this continuum of space around being able to manage it potentially very effectively right. um, and continuing to work right. or being accommodated informally or formally for that right. health condition. No one should ever, should ever feel forced to come forward with a physical or mental ailment right. beyond their own comfort level. And I just want to make it really clear, there is no suggestion in any conversation about workplace mental health of changing HIPAA laws right. and necessitating conversations between providers and supervisors. Um, that That's that's not on the table. No. This is just a conversation about how do we make the workplace 
a kinder place when it comes to mental health and the things that we all struggle with. Correct. And I would even, you know, take it a step further, as you've already alluded to, that it makes the workplace not only a kinder, more positive environment, but it's very likely that the workplace productivity and engagement and the, the ways of measuring the bottom line Absolutely. all become more going in the right direction. So, I mean, that is one of the selling points, certainly, to the C-suite about, about all of this change that's happening. So um, I, I was watching a, a previous interview that you gave and um, something that, that you said um, really struck a chord with me. You said that we've been socialized to hide our distress. Can you say more about that? Because that, I, I, I mean, I can talk about what that meant to me, but I, I just, what's, what's kind of the thinking behind that? Because I completely agree with it and all of the things that we've already talked about, but certainly the translation of that into the workplace is very, very real in today's, in today's corporate America. Yeah. I think it depends on the family you grew up in, your generation you're growing up in, and also your occupation and the specific work environment. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who hasn't been socialized in this way to, to basically, uh, let's start with the home environment. For a child who's having an upset moment and crying, to be sent to their room until they're ready to put on their good happy face and come out and be a good boy or a good girl. I mean, this is the message that many of us grew up with in our home environment, that sadness and anger were completely unacceptable and actually bad. So on an unconscious level, I think we have this layer of like, that is a sign of weakness and shame and badness. Mm -hmm. So we have to hide that. Whereas um, a healthier approach would be to say, feelings of all sorts are just normal. They're like agnostic. There's no judgment about them. They happen for people. It's how we process them and it's what we do with them and, and learning to control our behavior in response to those feelings. So those are messages that children can receive right. um, that, that is a different approach and, and could lead to a much more healthy sense of like the full range of emotions and um, upset and distress is okay but I do have to give myself a moment to figure out what to do with that. And I think that's, that's the next step that requires actually some skill. And you know, for, for people who haven't accessed psychotherapy, um, I think things like journaling mm -hmm. and other sort of self-reflective meditative Meditation. practices, yeah. mindfulness, music, um, a lot of that can be a way, yoga even. But I will say, just putting a plug in, Therapy can be not just for people who are mentally ill. Therapy can help dial up your game for just every human sort of neurotic problem that we have right. and, and really help a lot. So anyway, yeah, back to the distress thing. I think we all learned very early on, just don't show it and you, yeah. you, you pay less of a price. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, an inter it's interesting, right? Because um, I do think we have been socialized to hide our distress, but... Also, oftentimes in the workplace, we celebrate the badge of busy or the person that's so stressed out they don't have time to go to the bathroom, um, you yeah. know, and so that's an interesting dynamic, right? And so it's, it's not okay to be angry or sad or, you know, but it's 
completely okay to be so stressed out that you don't know which way is up. Right. And that became culturally associated with the high achieving student or worker. And, you know, a lot of that can be a whole lot of, (laughs) you know, looking like there's a lot of motion going around um, and not necessarily the most direct line to an effective strategy and implementing that strategy. And one that probably is going to take you down the path of burnout as opposed to long-term success, Um, speaking from my own experiences. (laughs) Yes, yes, most definitely. Many people who are kind of driven and sort of more type A individuals will have a whole set of rules that apply only to them because they expect so much of them and maybe whatever it is that they've internalized of, you know, the the messages that they heard in younger years and whatnot. But when you start realizing that the rules that apply to you, like um, whatever it might be, my day is only a worthwhile day if I have, you name it, exercised, eaten in a certain way. You know, again, we set up these sort of rules for ourselves, but you don't believe that about other people that you really care about or respect, that that there's a little, you got to catch yourself. That Mm -hmm. does not make sense. Then you're holding yourself to some standard for possibly unreasonable and unhealthy reasons that that warrants looking at. What are some other ways that we can better proactively take care of our mental health? Well, I would encourage every person to just think about what is what are the factors in your life that tend to stress you out the most and just do a little bit of of work around what are the inputs into those factors. Okay, so for example, if um, if right now one of the most stressful things going on in your life is your your elderly mother who is ill, and um, and and you have these assumptions that well, um, yes, I'm one of three or four you know adult children, but the responsibility falls to me, and therefore and 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 so I'm obligated to do X, Y, and Z. Now I have a whole build up of resentment around that and you're feeling basically trapped and helpless in your situation. So I think trying to unravel that a little bit and finding out are there assumptions you've made that are set in stone that you actually can modify? And I don't mean to stop taking care of your mother necessarily, Mm -hmm. but to have a conversation with your siblings or with her health care providers. To also um, think about the ways that you've scheduled your life's activities and your caregiving activities, where that all fits in, and looking at ways to, to rejigger that so that your own self-care activities might take a bit of a higher seat for a while. And I mean, that's the other piece to it, is each person actually has to figure out what activities is it that really fuels me up the most, right. because it, it is going to be somewhat different for different people. You know, we, we've talked a lot about stress and perhaps stress in the negative form now there there are positive reasons for stress as a matter of fact i would reframe it a bit perhaps and think of the things that are really positive that are stressful are probably the things that bring us meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. they drive us to um to sacrifice for them um you know, we, we, we work hard. Hopefully we find some meaning and gratification in our work in addition to earning a living by doing that. 
Um, we make sacrifices for our significant others, for our children, um, for our friends and our coworkers, because it means something to us and, and being part of that relationship. Um, so I think there are many positive aspects to stress. Another way to frame it is in terms of structure. Like we think that we would be happier if we were just on the beach eating bonbons every day. And the truth is every human being needs a level of structure um, to function mm. and to feel their optimal health and well-being. And I know that sounds weird. Um, if you think about stress in a different way, there's a chart of the most stressful events in a person's life. Um, and this is as measured by the uh, Cardiovascular Association that measures impact on heart disease mm -hmm. outcomes. And those stressful events, some of them are very, very positive. They're getting married. They're having right. a child. Mm -hmm. um, they're moving out of the house for the first time, starting college. Basically, we human beings are sensitive to transition right. and change. And any one of those moments represents tremendous change. Um, and some people are more sensitive to those transitions than others based on their genetics and other psychological sorts of um, underpinnings and factors. They, and I'm talking about both vulnerabilities as well as strengths. You know, we have a right. mixture of both right. in our in, in internal beings. Right. So, so would you say, I mean, so we, it, it's not right to say that if um, you are in a stressful situation or job or role for a long period of time, in all cases, it's going to lead to a mental health condition. That's not correct, right? No. Is no. it more about how each individual is able to process and deal with that stress or the type of stress? Um, obviously, negative chronic stress over time is going to have some impact on you, but there are people that thrive in a really high-performing, high-stress world or life and actually sometimes seek it, maybe that's <laughs> appropriately or inappropriately. Sure. I'll answer your question in a bit of a different way. As a group of employees, or any population that we want to look at, there's going to be a mixture of types of health conditions and health vulnerabilities that may not have manifested yet. And so whether they end up in this work environment or that work environment may or may not impact the course of the manifestation of a health condition and, and the progression of disease, where it goes from there. Right. But it can. Um, but what I would say is the individual, um, as well as the environment, both have to play a role. So, I, I mean, w one way to look at this whole topic of workplace mental health is to think about that interaction between the responsibility that every individual has to be as healthy as possible and the responsibility of the workplace to create a, a culture and an environment that promotes that. And not only um, sort of just not as an afterthought, because again, because of our socialization and uh, the stigma being so prevalent, it will not be that way. It will not be a healthier way without specific concerted efforts made by a workplace. So you can't just react when there's a, an issue or an incident. Right. I mean, we can, we can be in reactive mode for a long, long time <laughs> until we decide to get more upstream from there and actually take a look at what do we do to put into place that will lead to health your um, actual culture where these conversations are are not only acceptable to have but they're they're normal they're encouraged
I'm so grateful Christine could be with us today. Thank you to our producers and to you, our listeners. You can find the Work Well podcast series on Deloitte.com or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword work well, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you would like to hear on the Work Well podcast series or maybe a story you'd like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. Please share, post, and like this podcast. Thanks and be well.